0: we have to look at our children and acknowledge that deep within them is a a hunger to know God that only God can satisfy, that eternity is in their hearts. If we don't feed that hunger for eternity, if we don't touch on that eternity in their hearts, don't nourish it, somebody else will. Welcome
1: to the Strategic Families Podcast where we challenge your family to be rooted in God's word, energized with gospel-centered purpose, and activated on mission for His kingdom. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Strategic Families Podcast. It's great to be back with you again. I hope everyone is having a great December and enjoying the Advent season. What a great time of year to be pointing our kids to Christ as we celebrate His birth at Christmas, God's rescue mission for you and me. So my guest today is a super cool and intelligent guy named Andrew Kern, who is the president and CEO of the Searcy Institute, which focuses on classical Christian education. And regardless of where your kids go to school, whether they're in public school, homeschool, or private school, I promise you, Andrew's thoughts on education and parenting in this episode will be a huge blessing. Fair warning, some of the concepts he touches on are deep, but wow, they are so impactful. And my guess is that they're going to challenge how you and I approach our parenting. Andrew just has a way of making you step back and think about the most important things in life. And of course, in this interview, we focus on raising children well and orienting their hearts towards Christ. Really cool stuff. Friendly reminder before we jump into the interview, wherever you get podcasts, hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. And if this podcast has been a blessing for you and your family and you want to help support us, check out our show notes for a link to our Patreon page. All right. onto the show. All right. Well, Andrew Kern, welcome to the Strategic Families Podcast. Thank you.
0: It's great to be here. It's nice to be on a, on a podcast that cares about the family. Excellent. That's so good
1: to get to know you a little bit and really looking forward to our time and and, uh, all that you're going to share. So before we jump into the sort of the meat of what we're going to talk about, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us who you are, what you do for a living, and of course, tell us all about your family.
0: Yeah. Well, my family is the the most fun part. Um, I I have a wife named Karen. We've been married for 38 years now, and uh, we have five kids, all of whom are grown. The youngest is 28 and driving back to Cincinnati as we speak. He just spent the week with us. We got to refloor the house, things like that. And then he he did most of that, I'll add. <laughs> um, and then and then I have uh, I have four others, nine grandchildren. And you wanted to know what I do for a living too. I, I I'm a I'm a consultant and researcher is the easiest summary on classical education. What I, What I really am is a, a person who loves and is trying to get a classical education. And then tries to find people who also are interested in it and we just talk about it. But you have to give it a title so it becomes consultant and researcher.
1: There you go. Good. You know, I would love to dive into this topic of classical education. I'm I'm really glad that you and I got a chance to talk through that. And I know this is your passion near and dear to your heart. I mean, to be honest, I'm I'm pretty new to the scene of classical education. I'm just learning myself, but I'm I'm fascinated by it. And I wonder for any of our listeners who have no idea what classical education is or Christian classical education. Could you just give us a quick synopsis of it and you know why you find it so valuable and important?
0: Sure. I think the the, the easiest synopsis would be to to just use a definition. It's it's a, an education in which, well let me put it this way Christian classical education is the cultivation of wisdom and virtue by nourishing the soul on truth, goodness and beauty. We do it so that our children will better well, they will be better able to know God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him. I would say that, you know, what? why is it such a passion of mine? I think two reasons, or three reasons, let's say. One, I, in a certain sense, you could say the selfish reason, which is that I enjoy it so much. I just love so much reading the great books, having great conversations, I really don't think there's many joys in life better than a good conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's the heart and soul of a classical education. And then also there's the the spiritual side, which is that it's enabled me to to take a spiritual journey I, I couldn't have taken with the just a conventional education. And then third, there's the, the 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 effects of it. I have seen so many souls of children and families just light up, to come to life kids bored senseless who who suddenly find life interesting again. yeah, I'll just leave it at that. It brings people to life. it's It's a beautiful thing to see, right. Oh, that's
1: excellent. I love it. You know, some of our listeners will be home educators like me and my wife. We homeschool our kids. Striving after a classical education may be a little more accessible, you know, for a home educator. But of course, you know, I know a lot of these concepts are important for parents, regardless of where their kids go to school. and and, and I know classical education is, you know, it seems to be more way of thinking about the world as opposed to just, you know, stuffing knowledge in their brains. Sure. I would just love for you to give us a few reasons why should parents be interested in a classical education? What are some of the top few reasons that you would say, hey, regardless of where your kids are in school, this is a good idea
0: and here's why. Okay. Let me give you four words for convenience sake. They'll be technical sounding words and let me let me then explain what the words mean. So don't be off put by the words. They're just a condensed way of communicating. The first word is logocentric what I mean by logocentric centric is the idea that there is a logos and it is Christ. Mm. And he is the son of the solar system. He is the principle that makes sense of the world. He is the key of, of God's creation of God's creative symphony. If you want to call it that, whatever analogy you want to use, he is the thing that holds things together and gives it meaning. He is Christ, the logos and a Christian classical education. In its in its purest, its best sense if you like, is an attempt to to make Christ the logos manifest in all thought and in all activity. Now the second reason is is I'm going to use a, a term that people might not like some people and then allow me to explain and that term is humanism. Now I know that humanism has 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 taken a, a really bad meaning in our time but what's interesting is it actually was originally a Christian term. And what happened was it became secularized. So something called secular humanism became very big in the 20th century, and then they dropped the word secular and just stole the word from us. And I say, <laughs> take it back, right? So, so what is what is humanism? humanism? Humanism is great respect and reverence for this thing that is the image of God, that carries the image of God, that represents God, and that therefore has abilities given by God that should be cultivated just because they're there. What I mean by that is things like the ability to paint, right? We can paint, no other creature in the world can paint, Mm. right? Why can we do that? Because God made us that way, Mm. it's good, right? Now you can use it for bad reasons, of course, but it's good, we can sing. Birds make beautiful sounds, but frankly, they don't sing, Mm. right? We compose symphonies, we tell our children the history of the family, Right? And and of our people and of our nation and so on and so forth. So there's all these things that are utterly unique about human beings. And why are they unique? Because God wants to communicate with us and love us and be loved by us in a different way right. from every other creature. Hmm. And that's what I mean when I say humanism. So I mean I'm, I'm talking about Christian humanism. Right. 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 That that the gifts the gifts that God has given us. He gave to us for our pleasure and His glory, and right. we should we should cultivate them just because they're there, right? Right. The fact that maybe we'll make a buck off it, maybe we won't, but God will be glorified, right? right? Even, if, even if we don't see it, even if the angels are the only ones who see it, God will be glorified. And that's reason enough to do it. So that's what I mean by humanism, that we should take the, the unique qualities of what a human being is and cultivate them, right? The third word then is piety. And again, sounds like, you know, a throwaway word that nobody uses anymore. But what I mean by piety is is really reverence, and I mean reverence toward our fathers, toward our ancestors, toward our our heritage, and reverence toward our children, and reverence toward everybody around us in the world we live in. In other words, we are we are made by God to live in this world and to tend and care for this world as stewards, and we have parents. And I think of the story of, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth when Noah, after the flood, Noah gets drunk and and uh, Ham comes in and and he sees his father in his shame. He sees his father's shame. And what does he do? He goes out and tells his brothers. That's a horrible thing. Hmm. If you if you see your, your father in his shame, you don't go tell his brother, your brothers, you cover him. And, Ham, and Shem and Japheth, they actually walk in backward. They will not look at their father's shame and they cover it, right? That's piety. Now, some people are hearing me say we should ignore our ancestors' sins and all that. No, we should forgive them, right? We should forgive them. But we shouldn't, and we shouldn't pretend they weren't there, but we shouldn't go making that the thing we remember. I mean, really, is Noah, is that what Noah should be remembered for, is getting drunk? Even if we feel we need to process their sins because we're suffering because of them, our our, our role then is to forgive and to and to treat them with reverence right. right and that reverence that we treat our parents with honoring our fathers and our mothers will then more naturally flow into our children right and by right. by doing it to our ancestors and by and by reverencing our children and treating them with great respect then frankly, the advantage to us is great because they're more likely to treat us with respect, right? So you can turn it into a calculation if you want, or you can just do it because it's bias and it's right. Mm-hmm. And then the world that we live in, we don't have the right to just abuse it. We don't have the right to just um, turn it into something other than what it is. It's a creation by God, and, it, and therefore it needs to be tended and stewarded and offered up to God. Right. So that's that's what I mean by piety. And then the fourth word is coherence. And this is the very practical element of all this, if you're looking for that. You need a curriculum, you need a pedagogy, a way of teaching, and you need modes of assessment that are pious, logocentric, and humane. And my contention is that conventional education is not logocentric, doesn't even try to be, it's not humane, and it's not pious. And so we need to be looking for alternatives to that. Classical mm-hmm. education is an attempt, Christian Christian classical education especially, is an attempt right. to, to build a, a different way of thinking about About the child and about his place in the world and his role in the world and and what the child is and and what he's for so on. So those those four words are the what I offer as a kind of summary.
1: Wow, that is profound. I think that's something we would all do well to pay attention to as parents. It's beautiful. You know, one of the things I love as I've been learning about classical education is this. You know, this the striving towards virtue and to help our kids cultivate. Virtue, you know, rather than what we've been led to believe for years and years is the point of education, which is, you know, study hard, you know, go to a good school, get a good job, make lots of money. That's sort of the point of education. Well, you know, I, I know that's not at all the point of a classical Christian education. And I, I love how uh, there's so much focus on virtue. And I've heard virtue described as excelling in all things, excelling in, in all things human. And I, I was just wondering if you could turn this idea about the point of education on its head from a classical Christian perspective um, can you tell us what virtue is how would you define it and then why do you think it's so important for families to help cultivate virtue in their kids you know both for that family and for society as a whole really?
0: Hmm. There's an old Latin motto or, or line from a poem actually by a comic poet in the ancient world it goes like this virtus Primium est optimum. Which literally, kind of, it's hard to translate literally, but to translate it more or less literally means virtue itself is the highest reward. Virtue itself is the highest reward. So the immediate question then becomes, what? What? <laughs> what are you talking about? How can virtue be the highest reward? Because of what virtue is, right? Virtue, virtue. You said was excelling in all things human. I like that. The, the maybe a, a really what would you say more concrete or immediate practical way I like to define it is virtue is a human ability made excellent. Mm. And so you come back to those things earlier that we talked about the gifts that God gives us, right? He gives us the ability to use language, right? He gives us the ability to use language because he wants to talk to us. Mm. And, and, and this, this might seem strange to people, but therefore our ability to understand God when he speaks to us depends on our ability to use language right we don't tend to think that way we tend to think that language is just you know we believe the world that it's just conventions it's we just whatever usage says that's what you should do and so we we're, we're careless with our language as though it's not a holy thing to speak right we're the only things in the world outside of angels and god that can speak yeah. the only things we should we should cherish that right. and we should try to be really good at it and i don't mean by that we should be we should try to become movie stars or, or public speakers or, you know, vain, vainglorious. That's not what I mean by good. I mean, we should try to think clearly. I think we should try to communicate clearly. We should try to be precise when we should be precise. We should be funny when we're called on to be funny. If we have that capacity, we should be serious when it's time to be serious. All of those things depend on our ability to use language in one way or another. Now, I'm not saying language is the only thing, right? Virtue is, is across all the dimensions of life, any human faculty. All I'm doing with language is illustrating the point. Here is something that is so uniquely human. Only humans of all the creatures in the world do this. I know people are talking about parrots. No, it's not the same, okay? Parrots don't tell their family history to (laughs) children. So there's this unique quality that we have as humans. We have a a series. We have other unique qualities too, like thinking analogically, which is to say we can make pictures, we can make poems, we can make music, right? We can think scientifically, we can do math, right? These are unique God-given abilities that when we exercise them and practice them, they become virtues, Right. Any faculty, any ability that we have, physical speed is a virtue, right? There's physical virtues. They're not all moral. Okay, so any gift that God gave us, any ability that God gave us, it, it is a moral duty to get good at using it for his glory. And it doesn't have to always be consciously you know, weighed down with some kind of moral burden that we're supposed to. Sometimes we just should enjoy it sometimes God just wants to run in the wind with us you know so anyway what I'm to summarize virtue is a faculty or an ability God gave us that we then refine to a pitch of excellence and and it does include things like um cleaning up it does include things like wood carving those 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 can also become virtues right so that's that's the uh the main point as far as what virtue is the second question you said though is is why why is it so important to focus on on virtue? And the answer to that, I don't mean to be glib here, but I'll just make it as concise as I can. Is because everything else depends on it. Right, right. You, if you don't have virtue, you can't even be bad. <laughs> 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 like think think for example, one of my favorite movies is is uh, Ocean's Eleven
1: yeah. or the
0: Italian Job. Right. right. Because because here is all these criminals. But they're doing a super sophisticated crime. Okay. The only reason they can do it is because they have virtues. Right. Even even evil, even doing bad things can't be done without virtues. And and what I mean here is they're friends, right? They have they have they have good um, cooperative, they're able to cooperate better sometimes than Christians do. Um, they're they're able to reason carefully, they're cunning, they're clever. Right. There's all these virtues, but they use these virtues for evil purposes. Well, we can look at that and say, that's totally unjustifiable. I agree. Okay. But imagine if you can use virtues to do evil. Imagine if you wanted to, to do good, but you can't do good without virtue. Sure. Okay. You can't do anything well without virtue, right. anything. And so so when we're raising our children, the most important thing we should be doing in terms of their growth is is cultivating virtue in them cultivating right. virtue of, of any sort right I, I should quickly i should quickly add that there are spiritual virtues faith hope and love right and we should be cultivating their faith and we should be cultivating their hope and we should be cultivating their love as well well as part of not even as well as part of that's that's kind of the backdrop or the foreground for me
1: Right. Yeah. I, I would love it if you could address, you know, imagine there's a a, a Christian parent listening and they say, well, this all sounds great. Hey, I, I agree. My kids are in school for hours and hours and hours a day. What would be some takeaways that you'd say are, you, you can take this small step to try to inculcate this in your kids? Like what what would those steps be? I mean, reading mm-hmm. some of the great works, you know, poems, life experiences, How
0: would how would you go about that as a parent? Well, Depending on the school, of course, you're you're gonna have a lot of challenges to overcome. If if your children are in school, I strongly would recommend to you that you explore how high a priority the school places on virtue and on human nature and on coherence on logocentrism. Those things don't just happen, becoming becoming logocentric it doesn't just happen through maturity right you have to seek Christ to become logocentric right. and if and if they're spending hours and hours every day having that neglected at best and despised more likely in, in certain settings I would strongly recommend that you crucify yourself and bring your kids home but if you're if they're in a school that you you feel like they should be in which and there are many of those I'm not trying to argue at school as a concept sure sure Then then as much as you can identify areas where you might have to correct and identify areas where you might have to build on them. But it's hard because when you if you have to correct, you know, then you're creating a conflict in your kid's mind. And that's incoherent and confusing. So let me just if you feel like you have to correct what the school is doing, in my opinion, I don't know your circumstances, so I can't comment in detail. But in general, if you have to do that, you should get your kids out of the school if you possibly can. So having set that aside, there are there are schools where where they teach well. And if your kids are in a school where they teach well, then dance together with the school. Be submissive, be be humble and be be compliant and be um, supportive of the school and let your kids know that you are defend the teacher when the teacher says that your child is not as perfect as you want to believe. Um, or, or, or even that your child is much worse than you want to believe. <laughs> don't, don't assume that it's the teacher who's, who's messing up. But as far as specific things that you can do to to build on or supplement, the first thing is value sleep. I think one of the things that, okay, put it this way, the school setting typically in the modern world hates the human body wishes it didn't have to deal with the human body. Hmm. Okay. But the human body is a gift from God. It's not to be abused. And to ask a person to sit for too long in a day is unkind Right, so so if your child has been forced to sit for too much during the day, and now he comes home at the end of the day, he's going to be exhausted. Don't ask yeah. him to start thinking hard. His his right. he needs to, might he either needs a nap or he needs to to limber up his body and get moving. So there's you know to respect that that's an example of humanism. The way I meant it actually is, yeah. our bodies are are a, are a essential part of us and need to be treated with reverence and respect, and. Um, if the school in some way doesn't give your child some means by which the body can come back to life and be treated with respect again, um, get its balance back, get back at equilibrium. Um, and then having said that, yeah, I think a, a, the, the probably the most important thing is that early in the day, if you possibly can, before you go to school, you spend, let's say, five minutes praying with your children. And, and I think our Lord taught us the most perfect prayer that can possibly be prayed. If you could pray that prayer each day with your children and then make a list of three or four people that are important in your child's life and pray with your child for those people each day, and then end with a, 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 a short prayer of worship, five minutes a day of that can be transformative, maybe not every day, but over the course of a long time, very transformative. Right have dinner with your kids, right? As much as you possibly can, have dinner around the table with your children. Um, There is no better occasion for accidental conversations than normal everyday conversations. I think it's the most important part of the family liturgy is is just being together around the dinner table. The Latin word um, companion, that is a Latin word. It it literally means to the one you share bread with, cumpanis, Oh, Companion so may, be companions with your children and yeah also read 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 good books when they're younger there's thousands of them don't worry about reading lots of them just read ones that are good um robin hood uh um treasure island you know the 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 manly adventure stories and and um the the dream stories about what i can be when i grow up um Obviously the the you know Tolkien, how can you not how can you not read the Lord of the Rings with your children? The answer to that is because they're so big. Well then read the Hobbit, I understand. <laughs> Let them read Tolkien on their own. But Narnia, you know, read those things, read those yeah. things to them. The, the great imaginative literature um, it reveals truths that that cannot be revealed any other way. Mm. So yeah, and, and then try to get memory in. Try try hard to to spend a few minutes if you possibly can. If you're homeschooling, you can do a lot of this. But if they're in school, try to spend try to get them to take five minutes a day memorizing good poetry and Bible verses and things like that.
1: Well those are awesome tips Andrew thank you for all those. So we've you know explored this side of how to foster virtue within our homes which is excellent. I'd like to take a look for a moment at the other side of the coin like what happens if we I don't want to say fail but if we don't focus on this enough like if we mm-hmm. if we fail to understand just how important virtue can be in the lives of our kids what are the consequences as you see
0: them in your work? Colossal. The end of civilization destruction of souls, broken families. I mean, you could, you could bad homework, right? It's from, from the top to the bottom. It's, it's a little bit like asking what would be the consequence of, of not eating. Virtue, virtue is the healthy soul. That's what it is. It's the soul that's healthy. So in a way, in a way you're asking what, what would be the consequences of, of not tending my health? Look at look at America physically and look at America morally. And you got your answer to your question. Mm, right. But let me explain why I say that, though. One of the words that I think I I think I didn't use this particular word, but I really want to emphasize it now. And that's the word deliberation. OK, deliberation. Is the seed. Of moral action. It's the seed of of wisdom it's the seed of virtue. And it's what Christian classical education focused on above all else practically. The one thing, I'll put it, I'll overstate it and I'll say it this way. The one thing we need to teach our children how to do is how to deliberate. Interesting. If we don't teach them how to deliberate, what we're what we're not teaching them how to do is make decisions. Is there anything more practical than making decisions? Right sure acting right. them out but you can't act out a decision you haven't made mm. and here's here's a way to think about it okay if if i'm tempted by a sin what that sin does to me it, well in james it says it drags me away right the desires my desires drag me away from myself apparently and then and when they do so it, in effect they turn off the light and they stop me from thinking. That's the thing about it. We, when it comes to sin, we don't typically consciously choose, oh, I'm going to sin now. Right. What we do right. is we stop deliberating. We stop thinking. We close our mind to the consequences of what we're about to do. We close our mind to the implications of what we're thinking. We stop thinking. We turn off the light. Mm. Right? We become dark. And in the dark, we commit our sin. Mm. Right. Now think about this. Think about this. If it's dark, it's not just the specific thing that we're thinking about that we can't see anymore. It's everything the light would be shining on. Right. And so if we continue to deliberate and listen to ourselves and this Holy Spirit as we deliberate, then light shines. And it doesn't just shine on the specific thing we're deliberating on, the thing we're thinking about. It shines on the reality all around us, mm. and we become wiser, right? Right. We become we become more observant. We become enlightened, <laughs> you know, to use that word. And so, so deliberation, deliberation. As long as we keep doing it, what we're doing is listening. The way I love to de- to describe deliberation biblically is, it's hospitality to the logos, mm. right? The word is speaking to us. The word of God is speaking to us in our heart, through our conscience, just through awareness of reality at every level. The word of God is always speaking to our hearts and sometimes to our minds. When we deliberate, we're saying to the word, "Come in." I receive you. Right. I welcome you. I want to hear you. And when we stop deliberating, we're saying we're we're stopping it all. We get angry. We get um, lust-driven. We get, you know, we get passionate and we stop thinking, and then what we do is we divide ourselves. There's this thought for, there's thought about life, and then there's living life, and they get disconnected, which is kind of insane, kind of insane. right. And so what we need to do then is is we need to be always constantly trained, no matter what we're teaching our children. The one thing we should always be teaching them is how to deliberate, how to think, how to make decisions, whether it be practical decisions about what chemical to mix or moral decisions, right? Now, the consequence then, just let your imagination go. What happens when you stop thinking? How many times has mom said to the child, what were you thinking? (laughs) And the answer is, I wasn't. How How many times could we say that to ourselves? how many times could we say that to each other we yeah. do we do need to keep thinking right now I don't mean academically thinking only I just mean we need to keep on thinking keep receiving into our souls the Word of God All I right. don't mean the Bible but I also mean the Word of God Christ by mm. by his spirit yes the living you know Jesus is the Word of God right and so we so we need to just make a hospitable place and if we don't well at the at the spiritual level, we break our relationship with Christ who's trying to talk to us and we're not listening. At the, at the social level, we break our relationship with the people around right. us. At the moral level, we blind ourselves. We, 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 we damage our souls. We weaken ourselves. Which, by the way, is one thing I really want to emphasize as a general statement here is we, we often think that sin is a release from pressure or whatever. The reason sin is sin is not because God's trying to make us unhappy. It's because sin weakens us right? God loves us. He wants us to be strong. He wants us to be what he made us to be. But when we sin, we break ourselves down. All of this is contained in the Adam and Eve story. Yeah. Right. The, the tempting, what is, does what the serpent do? He gets her to stop deliberating. He gets, hmm. he gets her to be driven by something other than the word speaking to her heart. Yeah. And so, so he darkens her. He lies to her. He deceives her and stops her from that deliberate, from that thoughtfulness. And so then, so the consequences then are at every level at the social level for ourselves. We break our own relationships. We harm our families. Right. I mean, what, what do we need in a family more than we need wisdom and virtue? Mm. Is there, is there anything is what can we give our children? That's more precious than rubies. The Bible answers that question. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by telling them. It happens by teaching them how to deliberate. Teaching them how to make decisions, teaching them how to think. And my my view is that the entire curriculum should be ordered to that. And if you want the consequences at the at the largest level, socially speaking, look at our country. We're no good at deliberating. Right. We can't talk across the aisle to each other. We're enemies. We're not we're not people who disagree on practical things. We're enemies now. Yeah. That's what happens when you don't teach children in school how to deliberate. Wow that's a very long consequence of when we closed our mind to god sure look at romans one right the consequences of not cultivating virtue of not gaining wisdom practically speaking of closing our eyes to god which is the broad the theological way of saying the same thing okay the consequences are all that list of sins in romans one right and i just the fact I forget does it end? I think it ends with they dishonor their parents.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the, that's it. That it's a breakdown of everything: soul, society, family, relationships, self, insanity, everything. Only the, again, remember, virtue is well-being. Where virtue is the healthy soul, the healthy. It's a healthy body too. The intellectual virtues are the mind. It's it's the highly highly functional well-functioning however you want to put it the, the the mind body and soul that work well are virtuous so don't just think of it as moral and don't just think of it as habits it's a state of being yes it's it's the product of nurturing the soul on the true the good and the beautiful
1: well you know it strikes me that all the things you're talking about the consequences of of not focusing on virtue so much of that I think is you know to use your word not deliberate, it's just we're going through life, and okay. things are busy, and it's crazy, and there's activities, and there's sports, and oh, you know, we got to focus on the kids' schooling; they have to get into good college, and and it can it can happen, you know, to where we look back and we go, wow, I, I never really talked about the deeper things, the the really important things like virtue and wisdom and courage and all these things. So mm-hmm. I just wonder if if you could, and you've already talked about some of these ideas, which are fantastic, praying with your kids and having dinner with your kids and things like that. I wonder if we could just explore some of those things a little bit more. What does it look like for a parent to step in and say, I really do care about this. I really do want to raise virtuous children. Of course, you, know, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink. We can't control everything that our kids experience. We can't control everything they believe. But we certainly have a responsibility to step in and teach the truth and correct wrongs when we see them and things like that. What are some things that come to mind for you, practically speaking, as parents, on ways that we can step in and really focus on this for our kids, so that we give them the best chance possible of being, you know, the the virtuous, courageous, wise young adults that we want them to be?
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, three things came into my head while you were asking the question, real this one after the other. So I'll just say them and then think about them, deliberate about them. <laughs> the first is. Reorient yourself. The second is place cultivating virtue above talking about virtue. Mm. And the third is I'll, I'll say trust God and then explain what I mean specifically. So let me talk about that. Let me talk about the last one first trust God. I think there's a tendency for us as Christians, especially today with so much to be afraid of, to forget that He has put eternity in our children's hearts. And to forget that the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts, and to forget that they hunger for God, right? and And we can be very we can be very consumed with almost like a theological position that they're totally depraved or mm-hmm. or they're so sinful. It's true, but so are we. Mm-hmm. Right? so are we. and and look at what God has done in us. And look at how even when we were depraved, even when even before we some many of us before we ever, confess Christ as our Savior, we still hungered for God. We just didn't know that's what we were hungering right. for. yes. And and I think we, we have to begin with that understanding of the child, is that we have to look at our children and acknowledge that deep within them is a, is a hunger to know God that only God can satisfy. Yes. That eternity is in their hearts. And that if we don't, let me put it this way to, to jump the gap again, If we don't feed that hunger for eternity, if we don't touch on that eternity in their hearts, don't nourish it, somebody else will. Yes. And they're going to need some kind of transcendent cause or some kind of religious impulse or some kind of um, deeply meaningful thing to their lives. And if they don't have it in Christ, which is the only real meaning, if they don't have it there and, and then despair over that because we should have given it to them and we didn't, they will turn to something else. They will look for something else. It might be participating in political activism. It might be participating in the sexual revolution. It might be participating in the post-humanism and, and whatever. It's gonna be something yeah. transcendent, something that that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It won't make sense. So we won't we'll, we won't be able to, we'll, we'll look at them and say, what, what are you thinking? Because it won't make sense. But that's because they're looking for something transcendent. And the one transcendent thing that made sense, we didn't give it to them. Mm. We were so consumed with the practical and the day-to-day and the everyday needs and the bills that we forgot to feed eternity in their hearts. Mm. And so that leads to the second thing, which is the orientation. You know, it, it's 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 an easy buzzword, but our Lord did say, and we have to decide whether we believe this or not, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Hmm. And what are all these things? What are you going to wear? What are you going to eat? What are you are going to drink? Now, a question I would ask you and the parents that listen to your program. Who was the first person in the Bible ever to worry about what she was going to wear?
1: Oh, man, I'm probably going to fail a pop quiz.
0: <laughs> well, I'll give you a clue. It's Genesis 3. <laughs> yeah, big leaves. It was Eve, right? All right. And why did she want something to wear? She was ashamed. She was ashamed. I think what Jesus is getting at in that passage includes, I won't say this is all he's getting at, but I think it includes that he knows that we're afraid of being ashamed. Right. He knows that we're afraid of being exposed naked. He knows Mm. that. He gives us better clothing than we can make for ourselves. Yes. He does better than fig leaves. Yeah. If we seek first the kingdom of God, we'll never be ashamed. Mm. Maybe before men, but... That's gonna pass. Hmm. We won't be ashamed before God when when He looks upon us and looks in our eyes and, and wants to say to us, Well done. Right. And and might have to say instead. I mean, consider what is the ultimate shame? Would it not the ultimate shame? Is it not the feeling that the person you love the most says to you, I never knew you? Yeah. Right. We have to, we have to fear that more than we fear any human enemy. Mm-hmm. we have to fear we have to fear hearing god say to us i never knew you mm-hmm. more than we fear anything else and then we have to but 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 of course that the whole point isn't to get terrified the point is to move toward him yes to seek his well done right and that's what we want to orient ourselves toward if we go without a bill i mean if we go without being able to pay a bill if we end up having to live in a smaller house or even no house or even an African shack, if that's what God calls us to, he won't let us go hungry. He won't let us be ashamed. He will He will hold us close to himself and he will reward us beyond anything we can ever imagine. Mm. But we have to believe that. Right. right? It, it can't just be Jesus saves me and now I'm going to learn how to get a job at school. Right. Because then if we, if that's the approach we're taking, the Jesus we believe in isn't the one that's promising to save us. Right. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to also just be glib here because I'm not pretending that's easy and a solution to everything. Sure, it's hard to 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 every day seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's hard to lose a job. I've lost job. I got in one case in particular. I got fired for not being willing to lie for the boss. It's hard, but it's also fortifying. It it cultivates virtue, frankly. And we have to be willing to. If we want our children to seek first the kingdom of God, then we have to seek first the kingdom of God to show them how. There are other ways that God can get them to seek, can teach them, but he's appointed us to do so. And he'll help us do so. And let me add to that that the first step in seeking the kingdom of God is always repentance. So, if you know, if we don't feel like we can handle it, then the thing we need to teach our children how to do is repent by repenting, right, by praying maybe at the end of every day having a short 30 second session with our children in which we repent before them we're afraid of that but that's the most important thing we can teach our children is how to repent mm. and we can't teach our children how to repent by telling them to repent right we teach our children how to repent by repenting you know you get yes. it's like when you say that when you say to your child say your, tell him you're sorry and then he says i'm sorry and you know there i did it <laughs> well sure sure they did they obeyed but there's a big difference between obeying and, and back to the earlier point. There's a big difference between acting out of obedience and acting out of deliberation. Right. What you really want your children to do, obedience is first, but then comes deliberation. Hmm. And what you really want is when your child hurts his brother to say, to deliberate on what they've done and then actually express sorrow. Yes. Now, along the way, you just tell them, tell your tell your brother you're sorry. It's a good starting point. But if at 18 years, that's still how it is. (laughs) You didn't make it. So so orient yourself toward the kingdom of God and practice repenting with your children. Mm. And then the last thing I'll say is I said um, cultivate wisdom more than talking about it. There's a place for talking about it. Generally speaking, I would say the better way to do it, to, to cultivate virtue in your children than talking about it is to read fairy tales. To read folk tales, to read fables, to read mythology, to read to read fiction, to read narrative, because because fiction stories are always about characters who have big crises to deal with and have to make decisions, and they always give you things to think about and discuss and deliberate. Right? You can deliberate in a secondhand way. You can be reading I don't know. You can be reading Tom Sawyer, and or Huck Finn. Let's say you can be reading Huck Finn, and you, and you can ask your child wow do you think huck should try to set jim free and you can go through the whole story just pursuing an answer to that question Mm. you know you're you're deliberating right but you're not moralizing this is a crucial distinction you're not moralizing because you're not telling your child what huck should do or what jim should do. asking your child to deliberate on it and then you're comparing what he thinks with what huck actually does so you're reading the story and, and, you know, there's a hundred ways to ask, should you have done it? So be careful. Don't, don't beat them to death with the question and sometimes don't ask it. Sometimes just read the story yeah because every story is about a character who has to make a big decision. That big decision happens in a crisis moment, which is called the climax. And then the rest of the story plays out the consequences of that decision. That's a great way to teach our children how to deliberate and, and how to, how to pursue virtue. It's a great, and you don't even have to use the word. Just read stories, Bible stories especially absolutely read these stories, and those will create a sensitivity in the children. they just will, and they'll create analogies and pictures and metaphors and parables and and uh and examples that they'll have to think about so so don't don't it's not so much talking about I won't say don't ever talk about virtue, of course you should, but not in the crisis moment, right like don't ask in the crisis moment well <laughs> oh, I. I I'm guilty, <laughs> well, of course, we all are, but and i'm I'm also saying there's there's no law to this, right? Use judgment, deliberate sure. when you're about to use when you're about to talk about virtue to your children, deliberate and ask yourself, is this the moment to talk that way, or would it be better to play the role of Nathan the prophet before David? Nathan doesn't come to David and say, You're a wicked person, David. He might have lost his head. <laughs> instead you, by the way this is really helpful for me you know what the word parable literally means it's a greek word it's parabole b o l e from that word from that greek word bole we actually get our word bowl as in bowling like you know playing it means to toss parable means to toss para means in this case beside so parable means to toss beside so what Nathan does in that story is he takes the truth that he wants David to see. He wraps it up in a ball story, and he tosses it beside David. And now it's up to David whether David is going to pick it up or not. Interesting. Right? Uh, Isn't that? Fascinating. And that's how the parables work. That's what Jesus is constantly doing is he's he's taken a truth, and he's wrapping it up in a story, and he's tossing it beside us because he wants to see what we're going to do with it. Hmm. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature by deliberating, right? Reflecting on the story. He doesn't want us to just it, he does want us to memorize the stories. I am a big believer in memory work. But he doesn't want us to just memorize the story and then get on with things. He wants us to reflect on it. So he so the truth then takes a whole lifetime. A whole lifetime to figure out. So you know what you don't want to do is explain the parable to your kids the first time they read it. You don't, you you want to give them the parable and then let them be troubled by it. Right. You think about you're troubled by, you don't think about things that don't trouble you.
1: That's a, that's a great point. I remember my wife's mentor. He said this to her years ago, just about how he was talking about studying the Bible. It's the same concept. If Mm -hmm. if I study the Bible and then I tell you what I learned, you'll learn something. But if you study it for yourself and you, Mm -hmm. you know, glean what God is saying to you, you'll learn it so much better. And that, that, it strikes me as that that's a lot of what you're talking about. If, you know, if our kids are forced to wrestle with these characters and what they're going through and the lessons that they'll glean from that, that, you know, they had to work for it a little bit. They had a stew on it. They had to chew it. And those lessons will stick more than, you know, I told you, and then I told you again, and I told you a third right. time, you
0: know. Well, think of this, two things. One, Jesus, we believe, was the master teacher. Mm, yes. Well, then let's teach like him. Mm he didn't give exams and tests whatever let's teach as much like him as we can right he did occasionally give lectures but they're interesting they're they're different from yeah. ours yeah the second thing i want to point out and i love pointing this out to school teachers in the bible the first 69 chapters have one law it's all the rest is stories and then in chapter 70 exodus 20 10 more laws are given we tend to think of the Bible as, as, especially the Old Testament, as a collection of laws. He doesn't give the law to the Israelites until he's given 69 chapters of stories. Right. And I, I would recommend, therefore, to teachers at school to take the first 69 days of the school year to just tell stories. And then on day, on the day 70, tell them the rules. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> that's the, great. The, the proportion of about 69 to 1 or even, yeah, yeah, chapter wise. 69 to 1 that's a good proportion. Tell your, yeah. your kids 69 chap tell, 69 stories for every rule you give them. Excellent. I our kids would love that.
1: We all love stories. I I think that that's the way God has wired us
0: and uh in it's it's, be, it, it's it's more than the way he's wired us it's the way he's formed us. Mm. Right? We yes. are his image. An image is an analogy. Right. Right? An image is a pictorial analogy. A story is a verbal analogy. We, it's not only that we like stories, we are stories. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so it's, it's like liking our brother or something. Yes. We like it. It's like liking ourselves.
1: Oh, Beautiful, man. We could keep going on this topic. That is, that's so cool. Well, I'd love to, you know, just thinking about your own family, Andrew, as you were, you Uh know, when you had, (laughs) here's where it gets real. (laughs) No, seriously. As you were raising your own Kids and I, I know they're grown now, but what are some of those things that you look back on? You know, nobody's no no perfect parents among us. Um, huh. But what are some things that you think, you know, I'm really glad that my wife and I did this. And, you know, we see the fruit of that. Is there anything that comes to mind for you?
0: Stayed married. Amen. Above everything else. Amen. Stayed married. We've been married for 38 years hmm. and it has not been easy. I'm married to the best woman in the world, but she's not married to the best man in the world by any means. And, you know, <laughs> to, be blunt, <laughs> to be blunt, we laugh. I I at least laugh all the time about we're the most incompatible people who have ever, ever been married, my wife and I. We've had to work very hard at this, but we've stayed married. And I, I can't, I can't urge enough that, that, Okay, here, even here, I'm going to say that because you asked about, you know, family, I think, traditions or family st- strategy, that what we really do is we didn't just stay married out of willfulness. Okay, we thought we came to think differently about what I did, at least came to think differently about what a marriage is. And I came to realize very gradually, that a marriage is an image of the Holy Trinity. Mm. Okay. And the reason the evil one hates marriage so much is because he hates the Holy Trinity and anything that reveals it. What I mean is very simple: that in in Genesis one, God makes man in His image, right? He makes the man and the woman in His image. Okay, in Genesis two, He takes the woman out of the man's side; she proceeds from his side. And in Genesis three, they they or four, He beget they beget children. And then what? They die. Well, three and then four. And then Genesis 5, it begins. I think it's five or six now. I'm sorry. I've got myself all mixed up on air. But at the beginning of either chapter four five or six, but I think five, it says, Adam begot Seth. And get this. It says, Adam begot Seth in his image and in his likeness. Exactly the same words for how God made the man in Genesis 1. Interesting. Adam Interesting. begot Seth in his image and in his likeness. And and we already know from earlier that he didn't beget Eve, right? Eve proceeded from his side, and that's how the Holy Trinity is. The mm-hmm. Father is, is, is God, let's say, properly speaking, and then the Son is also God, begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father okay and so so when we so the woman is an image of the holy spirit directly in a certain sense and the man is an image of god the father and the children are images of god the son as children and so so when we when we start to think of us of our marriage as let's call it mystical i don't know a a mysterious manifestation of the very being of God Himself. Mm. It really deepens for me what it meant when it said, What God has joined together, let no man join um draw asunder. Now please understand that I un- my parents were divorced, and people I love dearly and godly people have had to be divorced. So I'm not I'm not making some kind of sweeping judgment, but I'm saying in your deliberation about what your marriage is incorporate into it that it's the vision of the Holy Trinity. Mm. And let me say this, that God loves marriage so much that if we're willing to take a step in his direction, he will pour out grace. Yes. He will send the angels to help us. And 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 we've had to pray a lot, my wife and I. we And he, God has answered our prayers. So we stayed married. Another thing on the more day-to-day level, we played a lot of verbal games. One game we particularly like to play, and this was fun driving, was a game called Just a Minute. And and when they're little, this is particularly fun, but it does depend on personalities. But we would play a game called Just a Minute where you're given a topic, like I might give the kids the topic Rome, and then they have to talk about Rome for a minute. And they're being timed, but they can't repeat themselves, and they can't hesitate, and they can't stutter, right? If they do, then it stops and it goes to the next person. If they can talk for a whole minute about a topic, then they get three points. And if they get and if they finish the minute that somebody else started, they get one point. So it's just a it's a it can be hysterically funny. And it's just a fun driving game that keeps them off the screen. Right. Oh, yeah. So that's that's one thing. Reading together. there's, There's no possible way to exaggerate the value of reading together the most important thing you do education wise with your children is read to them. If, if, if you back to that 69 to one ratio, Mm -hmm. you know, I I would say that the ratio of reading to them, to them doing their own schoolwork when they're young, should be about five to one, maybe 10 to, well, it'd be about 100 to zero at first. But, but you know, by 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 second grade, it should probably still be, I'm going to guess, five to one. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, it'll even out. And of course, when they're in high school, they'll read themselves a lot more than you can read to them. But right. don't stop. People have asked me when, how, how long should I read to my children? And my answer is, well, my dad, my dad died when he was 67. And about six months before that, he was reading to us. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't stop. Why would you, why would you stop enjoying life? Right. <laughs> and, and, and maybe, maybe the point here is that you shouldn't always read with too much purpose, right? Read for the pleasure of it. Sure. Don't just read because it's school time. We got to read, right. Eating together at the table as a family, do that every chance you possibly can with no screens on. Yep. yep. Don't trust digital technology. Digital technology is is a world of false promises. Yes, it's a world of anxiety, uncertainty, and it's not structured on on or by or for the human soul. It is mm-hmm. it is a you know there's, I'm I'm hoping that the metaverse. Turn is going to be Pickett's charge of technology. I'm hoping that it's going to destroy Facebook because <laughs> it looks like they poured so much money into it, but nobody likes it. Right. And I think they've taken they've taken virtual reality, as they call it, which is of course a nonsense term, but it, but they've taken this this digital technology so far. Okay, and I'm not arguing that there's not value in it. I'm just saying we have no idea how to distinguish. We don't deliberate about it. We just yes. use it. Yes. Okay. So. So if you're going to use digital technology, don't turn off the light. Don't go dark in your soul. Yes. Just use, use it wisely and prudently. And please know this, your children can't. They can't. Yes. They cannot use it wisely. When I say your children, I don't mean teenagers. By then, you should have taught them how to deliberate well and how to be honest and how to understand how things influence them. And then they're going to have to start making their own decisions. But maybe this is the last thing, as I'll say I'll – say, um, we worked, especially my wife, I suppose, but I tried to be very involved in this. But we tried to teach our children how to think long before they turned 12. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story that I like to tell. Um, oh, thinking means making decisions together. Right, mm. Involve them in family decisions, like what you're going to do for vacation, what you're going to eat, yeah. things like that. let them be involved in making yeah, decisions. Great idea and then live with their decisions when when you've let them make mm-hmm. them but i want to tell you a, a quick story about one of my daughters and i don't think i don't think she'll mind me telling this but when she, when she was about 12 or 13 years old i had a chat with her and i said i love you very much and i'm never going to stop your world is going to change a lot in the next couple of years you're going to change a lot And one of the things I want you to know is that I already know that you're going to do some really dumb things. I'm not going to be surprised by that. The thing I want you to know more than anything is that I trust you. That was it. Mm. Years later, I forgot that I ever had that conversation with her, And it came back to me. Years later, I think my wife told me. It might have been my daughter, but I think it was my wife told me. Because my daughter is... They're a lot older now <laughs> over the next, you know, whatever, six, seven, eight years when she really wanted to do something stupid. And the thing that kept her from doing it is that I had told her I trust you and she didn't want to lose my trust. Mm. When you don't give it to them, when you don't start by trusting them, there's nothing they can do to get it. Right. If you don't trust them, you'll never trust them to be doing what they're doing honorably. Mm. You'll always think they're making a calculation to get you to trust them so they can do what they want. Yeah, You have to start with trust. You have mm. to give them that trust when they're very little. You have to make them, as it were, trustworthy. You have to give them chance after chance after chance when they're little to earn your trust and earn your yeah. confidence. And then, you yeah. have to, then you have to give it to them. You have to trust them. Mm. Wow. I don't know. That's not, that might not sound strategic. Exactly.
1: Oh, that's hugely strategic. I think that's wonderful and wise to me. It sounds uh, if I can use the term self-fulfilling, like
0: yeah, I'm trusting you and thereby helping produce trustworthiness in you. We forget how much they want to be trusted. Right. We forget how deep an existential link parent and child have. Yeah. And by existential, I mean, it's beyond emotion. It's beyond thought. It's just total. Right, and how dignifying it all is. Right. Yeah. They want us to honor them. They want us to honor them, to respect them, and to love them so much. And if we do, they're not going to give that up easily. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I guess I'll just, you know, one last thing out, which is do everything you can to develop their God-given gifts, their unique talents, music, singing, piano, uh, writing, reading, horseback riding, dancing, whatever it is. What they're... Really, even if it's something you don't particularly have any interest in, and even if it's something dangerous like football, let them let them pursue it, because Mm -hmm. no matter what it is, if they get really into it. Even if it's pop music, forgive me, but even (laughs) if they're really into pop music, they will develop habits of thought and um, reflection that they'll carry long after they outgrow the stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe they're going to be too into comic books. Well, watch what comic books they're too into. Course, but if they're yeah. really into comic books, you know, they're gonna learn how to read better. They're gonna learn how to they're, they're gonna learn how to gather, collect, sort. They're gonna learn how to make evaluations. Yep. They're gonna learn to distinguish good from bad comics. And the principles that they'll learn will be transferable to things like Bible study, to things like choosing a girl or boy to marry, right? It's all mm-hmm. it's all transferable. It's yeah. Liberation. yeah. It's all rooted in deliberation. Yep. I love it. So not again, caveat, scalore, but use deliberation when you teach deliberation. Yeah,
1: I, I love that. It's one of the things that we've encouraged a lot of families to do is to come up with a list of core values, like think about, sort of deliberate on, to use your word. Uh, what are the things that are most important that you want to foster in your children as they grow up? And, um, and, and now I'm going to have to put deliberation as a new one, uh, from the mm. the grab bag of really really important ideas, I've never thought of that word that way, but I love it. I think that is just a beautiful thing to teach our kids, and as you've mentioned many times, to to model for our kids because we know can't can't just come from teaching; it also
0: has to be modeled. Just be it, yeah. Just be it. Love it. Don't always be. Don't always be tactical. Just be that way. Yeah. I'll give you another another thought. You talked about values. A question to ask yourself to help you discover values or even loves is. What are you afraid of losing, mm. right? What would make what would you be, what would you be really angry about, or what what is the last time you got angry? <laughs> but what would you be really angry about if it was threatened, right? What do you have? What do you cherish? What are you trying to get that if it was threatened, you would become angry? Yeah, that's a good way to to identify what you really care about. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a great point. Wow, this
1: has been so instructive and um, just such a blessing. Thank you for all your yeah, amazing you. thoughts on parenting and just how to raise a godly family. It's uh, this beautiful stuff. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, after listening to this, I'm sure some people are going to want to follow your work. What's the best way for them to uh, uh, follow the Circe Institute
0: and, and you specifically? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Circeinstitute.org is our website. And Circe, be careful. It looks like Circle, but there's no L. C I R C E it stands for consulting and integrated resources for classical educators so consulting and so C I R C E institute one word circeinstitute.org or.com or .com great and they have
1: lots of lots of great content there blog posts and you guys have your own podcast network and everything so um what a what a huge blessing for educators of all different types so
0: thank you so much
1: thank you so much for your time and all your wisdom
0: It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you.
1: Andrew, wow, what a blessing. You've given us so many awesome things to think through as parents, particularly on how we educate our kids. Thank you for sharing all of your awesome wisdom with us. Okay, so my song recommendation this week is one of my Christmas obsessions. You have to check out the version of Silent Night recorded by We the Kingdom. So beautiful. The chorus ends with, Come rest your eyes on the King, Jesus, our heavenly peace. It's beautiful. It also includes a diminished fifth, which you don't hear every day. Love it. And of course, you have to blast it for your kids. It will be a great addition to your Christmas playlist from here on out. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.